Chapter Twenty Two of Arthur Mervyn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Arthur Mervyn by Charles Brockton Brown. Chapter Twenty Two. This narrative threw new light on the character of Welbeck. If accident had given him possession of this treasure, it was easy to predict on what schemes of luxury and selfishness it would have been expended. The same dependence on the world's erroneous estimation, the same devotion to imposture and thoughtlessness of futurity, would have constituted the picture of his future life, as had distinguished the past. This money was another's; to retain it for his own use was criminal. Of this crime he appeared to be as insensible as ever. His own gratification was the supreme law of his actions. To be subjected to the necessity of honest labor was the heaviest of all evils, and one from which he was willing to escape by the commission of suicide. The volume which he sought was mine. It was my duty to restore it to the rightful owner, or if the legal claimant could not be found, to employ it in the promotion of virtue and happiness. To give it to Welbeck was to consecrate it to the purpose of selfishness and misery. My right, legally considered, was as valid as his. But if I intended not to resign it to him, was it proper to disclose the truth and explain by whom the volume was purloined from the shelf? The first impulse was to hide this truth, but my understanding had been taught, by recent occurrences. To question the justice and deny the usefulness of secrecy in any case. My principles were true, my motives were pure. Why should I scruple to avow my principles and vindicate my actions? Welbeck had ceased to be dreaded or revered. That awe which was once created by his superiority of age, refinement of manners, and dignity of garb had vanished. I was a boy in years, an indigent and uneducated rustic, but I was able to discern the illusions of power and riches, and abjured every claim to esteem that was not founded on integrity. There was no tribunal before which I should falter in asserting the truth, and no species of martyrdom which I would not cheerfully embrace in its cause. After some pause, I said. Cannot you conjecture in what way this volume has disappeared? No, he answered with a sigh. Why, of all his volumes, this only should have vanished was an inexplicable enigma. Perhaps, said I, it is less important to know how it was removed than by whom it is now possessed. Unquestionably, and yet, unless that knowledge enables me to regain the possession, it will be useless. Useless then it will be, for the present possessor will never return it to you. Indeed, replied he in a tone of dejection, your conjecture is most probable. Such a prize is of too much value to be given up. What I have said flows not from conjecture but from knowledge. I know that it will never be restored to you. At these words, Welbeck looked at me with anxiety and doubt. You know that it will not. Have you any knowledge of the book? Can you tell me what has become of it? Yes. After our separation on the river, I returned to this house. I found this volume and secured it. You rightly suspected its contents. 
the money was there. Welbeck started as if he had trodden on a mine of gold. His first emotion was rapturous, but was immediately chastened by some degree of doubt. What has become of it? Have you got it? Is it entire? Have you it with you? It is unimpaired. I have got it, and shall hold it as a sacred trust for the rightful proprietor. The tone with which this declaration was accompanied shook the newborn confidence of Welbeck. The rightful proprietor? True, but I am he. To me only it belongs, and to me you are doubtless willing to restore it. Mr. Welbeck, it is not my desire to give you perplexity or anguish to sport with your passions. On the supposition of your death I deemed it no infraction of justice to take this manuscript. Accident unfolded its contents. I could not hesitate to choose my path. The natural and legal successor of Vincentio Lodi is his sister. To her, therefore, this property belongs, and to her only will I give it. "'Presumptuous boy, and this is your sage decision. "'I tell you that I am the owner, and to me you shall render it. "'Who is this girl, childish and ignorant, "'unable to consult or act for herself on the most trivial occasion? "'Am I not by the appointment of her dying brother her protector and guardian? "'Her age produces a legal incapacity of property.' Do you imagine that so obvious an expedient as that of procuring my legal appointment as her guardian was overlooked by me? If it were neglected, still my title to provide her subsistence and enjoyment is unquestionable. Did I not rescue her from poverty and prostitution and infamy? Have I not supplied all her wants with incessant solicitude? Whatever her condition required has been plenteously supplied. The dwelling and its furniture was hers, as far as a rigid jurisprudence would permit. To prescribe her expenses and govern her family was the province of her guardian. You have heard the tale of my anguish and despair. Whence did they flow but from the frustration of schemes projected for her benefit, as they were executed with her money and by means which the authority of her guardian fully justified? Why have I encountered this contagious atmosphere, and explored my way like a thief to this recess, but with a view to rescue her from poverty, and restore her to her own? Your scruples are ridiculous and criminal." I treat them with less severity because your youth is raw and your conceptions crude. But if after this proof of the justice of my claim you hesitate to restore the money, I shall treat you as a robber who has plundered my cabinet and refused to refund his spoil. These reasonings were powerful and new. I was acquainted with the rights of guardianship. Welbeck had, in some respects, acted as the friend of this lady. To vest himself with this office was the conduct which her youth and helplessness prescribed to her friend. His title to this money as her guardian could not be denied. But how was this statement compatible with former representations? No mention had then been made of guardianship. By thus acting, he would have thwarted all his schemes for winning the esteem of mankind and fostering the belief which the world entertained of his opulence and independence. 
I was thrown by these thoughts into considerable perplexity. If his statement were true, his claim to this money was established, but I questioned its truth. To intimate my doubts of his veracity would be to provoke abhorrence and outrage. His last insinuation was peculiarly momentous. Suppose him the fraudulent possessor of this money. Shall I be justified in taking it away by violence under pretense of restoring it to the genuine proprietor, who, for aught I know, may be dead, or with whom, at least, I may never procure a meeting? But will not my behavior on this occasion be deemed illicit? I entered Welbeck's habitation at midnight, proceeded to his closet, possessed myself of portable property, and retired unobserved. Is not guilt imputable to an action like this? Welbeck waited with impatience for a conclusion to my pause. My perplexity and indecision did not abate, and my silence continued. At length he repeated his demands with new vehemence. I was compelled to answer— I told him in a few words that his reasonings had not convinced me of the equity of his claim, and that my determination was unaltered. He had not expected this inflexibility from one in my situation. The folly of opposition, when my feebleness and loneliness were contrasted with his activity and resources, appeared to him monstrous and glaring. But his contempt was converted into rage and fear when he reflected that this folly might finally defeat his hopes. He had probably determined to obtain the money, let the purchase cost what it would, but was willing to exhaust pacific expedients before he should resort to force. He might likewise question whether the money was within his reach. I had told him that I had it, but whether it was now about me was somewhat dubious, yet though he used no direct inquiries, he chose to proceed on the supposition of its being at hand. His angry tones were now changed into those of remonstrance and persuasion. "'Your present behavior, Mervyn, does not justify the expectation I had formed of you. You have been guilty of a base theft. To this you have added the deeper crime of ingratitude.' but your infatuation and folly are, at least, as glaring as your guilt. Do you think I can credit your assertions that you keep this money for another, when I recollect that six weeks have passed since you carried it off? Why have you not sought the owner and restored it to her? If your intentions had been honest, would you have suffered so long a time to elapse without doing this? It is plain that you design to keep it for your own use." but whether this were your purpose or not, you have no longer power to restore it or retain it. You say that you came hither to die. If so, what is to be the fate of the money? In your present situation you cannot gain access to the lady. Some other must inherit this wealth. Next to Signora Lodi, whose right can be put in competition with mine?' but if you will not give it to me on my own account, let it be given in trust for her. Let me be the bearer of it to her own hands. I have already shown you that my claim to it as her guardian is legal and incontrovertible, but this claim I waive. I will merely be the executor of your will. I will bind myself to comply with your directions by any oath, however solemn and tremendous, which you shall prescribe." 
As long as my own heart acquitted me, these imputations of dishonesty affected me but little. They excited no anger, because they originated in ignorance, and were rendered plausible to Welbeck by such facts as were known to him. It was needless to confute the charge by elaborate and circumstantial details. It was true that my recovery was, in the highest degree, improbable, and that my death would put an end to my power over this money, but had I not determined to secure its useful application in case of my death? This project was obstructed by the presence of Welbeck, but I hoped that his love of life would induce him to fly. He might wrest this volume from me by violence, or he might wait till my death should give him peaceable possession. But these, though probable events, were not certain, and would by no means justify the voluntary surrender. His strength, if employed for this end, could not be resisted, but then it would be a sacrifice, not a choice, but necessity. Promises were easily given, but were surely not to be confided in. Welbeck's own tale, in which it could not be imagined that he had aggravated his defects, attested the frailty of his virtue. To put into his hands a sum like this, in expectation of his delivering it to another, when my death would cover the transaction with impenetrable secrecy, would be, indeed, a proof of that infatuation which he thought proper to impute to me. These thoughts influenced my resolution, but they were resolved in silence. To state them verbally was useless. They would not justify my conduct in his eyes. They would only exasperate dispute and impel him to those acts of violence which I was desirous of preventing. The sooner this controversy should end, and I in any measure be freed from the obstruction of his company, the better. Mr. Welbeck, said I, my regard to your safety compels me to wish that this interview should terminate. At a different time, I should not be unwilling to discuss this matter. Now it will be fruitless. My conscience points out to me too clearly the path I should pursue for me to mistake it. As long as I have power over this money, I shall keep it for the use of the unfortunate lady whom I have seen in this house. I shall exert myself to find her, but, if that be impossible, I shall appropriate it in a way in which you shall have no participation. I will not repeat the contest that succeeded between my forbearance and his passions. I listened to the dictates of his rage and his avarice in silence. Astonishment at my inflexibility was blended with his anger. By turns he commented on the guilt and on the folly of my resolutions. Sometimes his emotions would mount into fury, and he would approach me in a menacing attitude and lift his hand, as if he would exterminate me at a blow. My languid eyes, my cheeks glowing, and my temples throbbing with fever, and my total passiveness attracted his attention and arrested his stroke. Compassion would take the place of rage, and the belief be revived that remonstrances and arguments would answer his purpose. End of chapter 22